Welcome to the New Life Podcast, a ministry of New Life Presbyterian Church in Ithaca, New York. Join us for worship each week at 10 o'clock at 950 Danby Road, Ithaca, New York. You can also visit us on our website, www.newlifeithaca.org. Now here's this week's sermon. The gospel this morning comes from St. Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 40. Please stand for the reading of the gospel if you are able. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death, before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit to the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For mine eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was eighty-four. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel, of, Jer- of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, They returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong and filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. The Gospel of the Lord. There is a uh, cartoon back in 1993 from Gary Larson, The Far Side. Uh, And then it's a single frame, um, and you see this kind of goofy-looking guy, uh, somewhat looking like me, sitting at a a very large desk, um, and there's a gigantic portrait of him on the wall beside him. And then you see two people coming in the door uh, who have lab coats on, and uh, one of them says, Sorry, Your Highness, but you're really not the dictator of Ithuvania, a small European republic. In fact, there is no Ithuvania. The hordes of admirers, the military parades this office, we faked it all as an experiment in human psychology. In fact, your highness, your real name is Edward Belcher. You're from Long Island, New York, and it's time to go home now, Eddie. 
we live in a culture of celebrities. Uh, we want to make a name for ourselves. Uh, this is even steeped into our church culture as well. Um, you hear words, uh, Michael Horton says this, uh, like radical, epic, life-changing, ultimate, extreme, awesome. Our life has to count for something. We have to leave our mark, make a legacy, make a difference in this world. Um, and I dare say that's even more extreme in a, in a town with an Ivy League school. Uh, who wants a bumper sticker that announces to the neighborhood, my child is an ordinary student at Bubbling Brook Elementary? <laughs> who wants to be that ordinary person in an ordinary town, a member of an ordinary church with ordinary friends and an ordinary job? Our life has to count. We have to live up to that Facebook profile that we put out there. And I think about that because I think a lot of times I'm like Eddie Belcher. Um, I think of myself as a dictator. I'm reminded of that whenever I'm sitting in a traffic light or waiting in a long line at the grocery store and thinking I've got somewhere else I need to be. But a lot of times uh, in looking at scripture, I become fascinated by what uh, Pastor Jim Boyce called the little people. That seems to be the case with Simeon as well. We, we don't know much about him at all. He isn't mentioned before this incident. He's never mentioned again in Scripture. There's no monument to him, as Steve Brown says. There's no great tradition surrounding him. He didn't even write a book about his experience about seeing and holding the Messiah. And yet, nevertheless, here he is. All we have is this passage. All we know about him is that he saw Jesus. But really, that's the ultimate question for all of us as, as we go looking through Scripture, particularly the Gospels. Who is this person, Jesus? And then how do I respond? What does that mean in my life? Let me pray and let's take a closer look at this passage. Father, we pray that you would overwhelm us once again with your glory and grace in the love and affection that you have for us in Christ Jesus. We pray that you would preach this life-changing good news to us again this morning and every day. Remind us that we are your beloved children because we're so prone to forget. Holy Spirit, continue to work within us because we can't change our own hearts. Salvation is from the Lord from beginning to end. Keep pressing this good news into our hearts. In the name of our older brother Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now, you notice in, in the passage here, um, verses 22 to, to 24, um, when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Verse 23, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And then down in, in the middle, verse 27, when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. You see, at least four or five times in these very short verses, Luke makes it clear that Mary and Joseph are following God's law, the law of Moses, the law of the Lord. And it's not just here in this, this one particular passage, but throughout the life of Jesus, it's made clear again and again and again. Even from his earliest days, Jesus obeyed the law of Moses. He perfectly obeyed all of God's law. In fact, it's almost as if Luke is saying here, uh, let me just say Jesus obeyed the law of Moses better than Moses did. Why? Because Moses didn't 
obey this very law. Remember, Moses didn't circumcise his own son at first. And in Exodus chapter 4, we read that Moses was met by God on the way, and the Lord almost killed him because he had failed to obey this law. Luke is telling you that Jesus is better than Moses. He obeyed Moses' law better than Moses himself did. From childhood, he obeyed the whole Mosaic Code, all of God's law. Why is that so important? Because not only did that enable him to speak with authority as a teacher of the law, but also his act of obedience that saves all who trust in him. You see, in order for us to be in relationship with God, we have to be perfect, and that's our problem. No one is. Not one of us is good. We all want to be our own rulers. Not one of us is righteous, but I'm Eddie Bauer, Eddie Belcher, not the dictator. Even though I act like I am most of the time, and I get upset when other people don't see things that way, we're in trouble because there's no way to fix that. Were we to stand before God and be measured by our fulfillment of the law, all of us would fall short. We'd be condemned. But God doesn't leave us there. The perfect man has our sin accredited to him, and he pays the full wrath of God for it. And we have his perfect record, his righteousness, credited to us so that we're accepted by God. Jesus is the one who perfectly fulfilled the law of God for us. Now, here's what I really don't get in in preparing for this message. I'm amazed how many great commentators, pastors, people I frequently go to and learn from and still do, but they do strange things with this passage. One continues to go on about the character of uh, Simeon. Another speaks of his unimpeachable character. Another says he's always aiming to advance his own and his neighbor's welfare to the glory of God. A fourth even said he was a model Old Testament saint who kept the law of Moses. I don't see any of these things. You see, Simeon was righteous because he was trusting in God's promises to redeem his people through the Messiah, the one he's holding in his arms. We don't know anything else about him. We have an ordinary guy that we know virtually nothing about, and yet so many people go through so many contortions to describe his character and conduct when that's not the point of this passage at all. The focus of the passage isn't on Simeon, it's on the baby he's holding in his arms, Christ. I like to say that Halloween is actually the uh, ultimate equal opportunity holiday thinking this might be strange to hear a pastor say this. Um, But think about it. Everybody gets candy. All you have to do is go to somebody's front door. There's no checking of qualifications. Um, You come, you receive candy, sometimes quite a generous amount. But, But Christmas, on the other hand, you know the song. He's making a list. He's checking it twice, going to find out who's naughty and nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. Yikes, that's that's horror for me. Because I know I'm not on the good list. I've been naughty quite a lot. I'm not getting any presents. I'm just getting coal. Or Dickens' A Christmas Carol, wonderful story, but Jacob's Marley's ghost is dragging around this huge chain, which he said was forged by the selfish and evil deeds he committed during his life. Luke clearly points out over and over that it's God who's at work in Simeon. Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. 
It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. Simeon was trusting in this God. It was his Spirit at work in Simeon. He was ordinary, not extreme, not on the edge. Is that quote from Michael Horton there? Like every other area of life, we've come to believe that growth in Christ as individuals or as churches can and should be programmed to generate predictable outcomes that are unrealistic and not even justified biblically. We want big results sooner rather than later. And we've forgotten that God showers his extraordinary gifts through ordinary means of grace. He loves us through ordinary fellow image bearers, and he sends us out into the world to love and serve others in ordinary callings. What an extraordinary thing. Even even for us who have been following Christ for a long time, we often get these wrong ideas in our minds, but yet God uses oftentimes ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Here's another amazing point from all this. Simeon didn't know all the details of how this small child was going to save his people, and yet he still trusted God. Now, we have even more benefit than Simeon. We have all four gospel accounts in the rest of the New Testament. We know that Christ lived a perfect life. We know that he was killed and went to the cross in our place. We know that he rose again from the dead, and then he ascended into heaven. We know all these things that Simeon didn't have all those details, and yet he still trusted. How much more so do we then have reason to sing and hope? We have every reason to continue to live in expectant hope, even in everyday, ordinary routines, trusting in the second coming of this Messiah, who promises people that he would one day come again with clouds and glory. Now, I've got to move on to my second point, or we won't get on to lunch, which, as Eddie Belcher, is very important. Righteousness. Secondly, notice redemption or salvation. Verses 26 and then 30 and 32. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, the Messiah, the promised one. Verses 30 and 32. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Simeon's waiting for this long expected promised one. And God's told him he won't die until he's seen the Messiah, the one who will redeem Israel. This is the one God has been promising for hundreds, thousands of years, and the people of God have been waiting for him to come. Ever since God promised that first seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15 that would crush the head of the serpent, the son of Abraham in Genesis 12.15 and 17, to the one Isaiah spoke of in Isaiah 52, this is the one who would deliver God's people. And now here he is in Simeon's hands, his arms. Notice what Simeon says about him in his prayer. Jesus isn't just going to restore the glory of an oppressed and sinful Israel, but he brings revelation to the Gentiles, light to the nations. God reveals this true God, the true way of salvation in Jesus Christ, even to the Gentiles, to all nations. Isaiah writes, The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all nations. The ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. 
The whole world is covered with darkness through sin, much like January is in upstate New York. But Jesus comes to dispel the darkness, to shine the light of salvation in every dark corner of dim hearts. And so we too can say, look, here is salvation. Jesus Christ is God's light for the world. That's why Simeon said he could depart in peace. The Prince of Peace had come to bring salvation to the nations. True peace comes only when we, like Simeon, understand that salvation is Jesus Christ plus nothing, and we rest in him alone. That's redemption. Finally, notice the revelation, verse 34 and 35. Simeon blessed them, said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that hearts, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Simeon reveals this prophetic word about Jesus. The child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel for a sign that's opposed. A sword will pierce your own soul. Now, wait a minute. I thought Christmas was good. Happy thoughts, warm feelings, warm woolen mittens, visions of sugar plums dancing in their heads, chestnuts <coughs> roasting on an open fire, or peace, as we just talked about. But I don't hear too much, at least in the world out there, about swords at Christmas time. But Jesus is a dividing point of, of history, of humanity, of salvation. He's come for our salvation, but that salvation, that peace comes through suffering. Jesus is going to be the object of opposition. You can't understand the whole point of Christmas without looking forward to Good Friday and Easter. In some ways, Christmas is easy to commercialize. There's a cute baby. That's, that's a good thing. Um, but Good Friday and Easter, death and resurrection, the world has a hard time with that, though they try. But Jesus has come, and he's come to die for his people. Somebody said Simeon's prophecy shows that from beginning to end, God had a mission for Jesus that required him to suffer and die for sinners. The crucifixion was not some surprising, unexpected development, but the fulfillment of God's preordained plan. And Simeon gives us the forewarning of that here. Jesus is appointed by God for the rising and falling of many. He reveals our hearts as well. If you reject this person, Jesus, he's appointed for your fall. Eventually, you're going to fall. You're going to be cast out. You're going to be judged. You're going to be condemned. But if you embrace this Jesus, if you trust him, you find salvation in him. You give all the blessings and the fullness of the kingdom of God. Life as it was meant to be lived to its fullest in presence and communion with the living God. You'll be raised with Christ Jesus. That's the amazing thing. The, the passage here talks about being raised, um, and the, the idea is that there's bodily resurrection. Jesus is revealing our own hearts to us. He keeps taking away all these things that we keep trusting in so that we trust in him, the only thing that really saves the prophets kept telling Israel over and over, if you live for yourself, if you trust in yourself, if you worship yourself or anything else, you're going to fall and die. But if you trust in Christ, you live like you've never lived before. That's extraordinary. You see, you can't be indifferent 
about Jesus. You can't think, oh, that's nice, and go live a comfortable, ordinary, everyday life. Jesus doesn't allow that. You either have to run away from him in fear, or you try to attack him in anger, or you fall down and worship. Do you trust that he alone is your righteousness, your salvation, your only hope for being raised? That is good news. As Eugene Peterson says, here's the marvelous thing. We enter the story without becoming the center of the story, much like St. Gregory's quote that Tim read earlier, that we are participating in the feast, that we ran with the star, we worshiped with the magi, with the shepherds, we were illuminated with the angels, we glorified with Simeon, we took him up in our arms, and with Anna, we made a responsive confession. If you're here trusting in him, then he has been appointed for your rising, and that includes our bodily resurrection. That's extraordinary in the midst of the ordinary. You may be Eddie Belcher from Long Island or Keith Fogerheim from Cortland and not the dictator of your own country, but you are nevertheless a child of the living God. And though one day you will die, you will rise again and reign and rule with Christ. And even here and now, in the midst of an often dark time and place, God uses your ordinary life in ordinary ways to still accomplish extraordinary things for his kingdom. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. And so this is the amazing thing, that the light does shine in the darkness. A promise of redemption, resolution, restoration comes when all will be light. When one day there won't be any more tears and we'll all sing a Christmas carol with far more gusto than we ever were able to sing in the dark. There's a quote in the ancient uh, church from Cyprian. After he refers to an incredibly bad world in which we live, he wrote to Donatus, Yet in the midst of it I have found a quiet and holy people. They have discovered a joy which is a thousand times better than the pleasure of this sinful life. They're despised and persecuted, but they care not. They have overcome the world. These people, Donatus, are the Christians, and I am one of them. There's a lot of people in a darkened world that need to have hope. And he uses ordinary sinners like us to introduce them to the friend of sinners. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Please rate and review us on your podcast service and share with anyone who may be interested. The intro and outro music for the New Life podcast is provided by Sandra McCracken with her permission. Please visit her website at sandramccracken.com. We'll see you next week.